Headless Mike, we are moving on up. How sexy is that? <laughs> Speaking of sexy, we have t-shirts in, in the back for sale as well. They are $10 for anyone who'd like. We also have CDs, uh, which have some original music from Southern Mile Road, Boston. The song we just sang, Foolishness, is from there, so if you'd like to pick that one up, you're welcome to do that as well. Okay, today we begin a preaching series, like you said, called Christ Crucified. Uh, so let me begin like this. At the center of the human body, uh, of our anatomy, what keeps us going is our heart, right? So that's why we say things like, let's come to the heart of the matter. We know that when we say something like that, we're talking about coming to that which is central, that which is vital, that which is permanent and most important. Uh, for us, we could sort of survive even without some of our organs working or even if our limbs are removed, but if the heart keeps going, we're good, and when the heart stops, we're done. So when you come to the heart of something, you know you're coming to something that is vitally important. So if I said that we're going to come to consider the heart of the Christian faith, whatever the answer we're going to say would be, you would at least be with me on the same page, that we're about to consider that which is central, centrally important, vital, that which is permanent and fixed. That which you can't touch or dislodge or remove without doing violence to the whole thing. You're going to be talking about something that is essential. So then, we'd have to ask the question, what is the heart of the Christian faith? What is central to what we believe? What's at the very core? Now, all manner of men have answered that question in all manners of ways. We could go to different doctrines, different teachings, different parts of religion. Here's what I want you to hear the Apostle Paul say. How I think he would have answered that question. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance. So there you hear it already. First importance. What I've got you to get right away before anything else, fixed, immovable, permanent... For I delivered to you what I received as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. As of first importance, that Christ died and Christ was raised. Or hear how he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, this is Paul writing, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for, and this is what he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You hear that? Paul says, my commitment, my determination, my resolution as I come to you is that I would know nothing except what? Jesus Christ? That's not what he says. It's not that Paul is saying, I have come resolved to preach or teach or revolve around nothing but Jesus Christ. He adds two more words. And him crucified. It's that the subject of Paul's worship, the object of his preaching, the content of his ministry is not just Jesus Christ. It is namely, specifically, Jesus Christ crucified. Christ crucified. It's, it's not Christ, it's a crucified Christ that is central to Paul's conviction, his commitment. So 
you see, you could, you could revolve around Jesus. Just two weeks ago, I met a religious leader whose church, if you'll call it that, or body or people, they meet, they gather, their worship is centered around, he said, the life and teachings of Jesus. That sounds applaudable. That sounds like you've got to pat him on the back and say, good, right? Because you've got love your enemies, you've got serve the poor, you've got wash one another's feet, you've got do unto others what I would want them to do unto me. And yet, when I asked him further, he would say, but the death and resurrection of Jesus we don't focus on. So, so you can have whole things that are built on the life and teachings of this good man. That's not where Paul is at. Paul says, my resolution, my commitment is, I am going to preach Christ crucified. I've resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. So then, what's centrally important for us in the Christian faith is what? What's our central symbol? It's not that we talk about a manger or even the empty tomb. What is the symbol of Christianity? It's the cross. The cross. The cross has come to represent Christianity. The cross is actually the most widely known symbol in history. Nothing has come to represent or associate itself with anything like the cross has come to represent Christianity. All over the world, in all times, people have recognized more widely than any other symbol, the cross. So then the Christian faith is represented not by, for example, a manger. It's not even represented by a dove that's promising peace, or scales that are pointing to justice, or a rainbow that's promising promise, or, or a throne that's speaking of power. Christianity and Jesus is represented by a cross. A cross is, is what you find when you drive into this building. Outside, you see a giant cross. A cross is what hangs at the end of many of your necklaces. A cross is what adorns artwork in your home. A cross is what even the early church fathers like Tertullian taught the people to draw over the sign of their bodies. Because Christians were always going to be people of the cross. Now, I don't know if we get how odd, how strange, maybe even how disturbing that really is. I don't know if it's lost on us what an odd thing it is for us to be centered on, talk about, and come together each week around the cross. Because I don't need to remind you that the cross is a place of death. That the cross, where there was a cross, there was going to be death. And not just death, the most horrific, horrible, agonizing of deaths. Where there was a cross, you could be sure there would be carnage and torn flesh and buckets of blood and shame and humiliation and crowds and jeering and the worst of death. The, the cross is the invention of a very depraved mind, right? Only man who is utterly or totally depraved could have come up with something like the cross. Others have said it before, so I'll say it. Coming together around the cross would be like venerating an electric chair or having at the end of your necklace a small golden lynching rope 
or singing about the majesty and might and power of a gas chamber. That's what it would be like to be a people that are centered on and fixed on the cross, the cross of Jesus. So, just to give you some background on the crucifixion, so that you begin to see how odd, how strange it is that we are people of the cross, the crucifixion in history is one of the most agonizing, tormenting, torturous ways to die. Horrific, horrendous, gruesome, gross. In fact, it has burst a word to sort of explain what it is. Our word excruciating comes from the word of the cross. It, it literally means from the cross. And so the cross is so graphic and so altogether ugly that it birthed a word into existence to explain it. Excruciating. The cross was a practice. Crucifixion was a practice invented by the Persians, but then widely popularized and used by the Romans. And the Romans took crucifixion and, and they perfected it to sort of an art form. One of the ancient historians, Josephus, says that the crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths. Or the ancient Roman philosopher named Cicero. This is what he says about crucifixion. Listen. A most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears, and used only as an extreme and ultimate punishment of slaves. Cicero is saying, and the law of the day was, listen, crucifixion is so altogether horrendous that Roman citizens were basically exempt from it. You had to commit the worst treason if you were a Roman to be crucified. Because crucifixion was left for the most despicable, most disgusting scum of the empire. That's who you nailed to the cross. And so the Romans, Cicero would say, you should take the cross and not even have it apply to a Roman, much less be in his thoughts, visual to his eyes, audible in his ears. You should have nothing to do with it. It should be reserved for the worst traitors or slaves. Crucifixion. And, and Roman crucifixion was further, not this private affair that you sort of did in the backyard. It was public for the world to see. It was on display for everyone. Because the Romans figured out, not only were you going to kill this criminal, you were going to make an example out of him. You weren't just going to take his life. You were going to use his death on display for everyone as an example. Because in, in the Roman crucifixion, it was done so that it was a shout to the rest of the empire, this is what's coming if you step out of line. If you think you're going to go against the empire, this is what's coming your way. And so they made sure that crucifixion was a very public, humiliating moment. So crucifixion wasn't done in some backyard. Crucifixion, if it was in our day, would have been done on Roosevelt Boulevard to make sure there are 12 lanes passing by, everyone getting to see Rome's strength and the weakness of all her foes. It was going to be on display for everyone just how embarrassing, how altogether hard this thing was. When you crucified someone, they often would even crucify them at eye level. 
so that people could walk by and stare them in the eyes and spit them in the face and throw stones at them and continue to mock them. In crucifixion, the crucified person was stripped nude. And often, the pain becomes so great that you became incontinent or couldn't control your extremities, your, your functions, and so you would urinate or defecate in public for all to see. And they stared and jeered and mocked your naked body hanging, dying on the cross. Often crucified people took days to die because it was a slow, agonizing, painful death. They would often leave the bodies there so that the heat of the sun or birds or vultures could pick it apart. And then what was left of you was sort of thrown into a city dump or a mass grave. In fact, critics of the resurrection, writers, scholars who deny the resurrection, say that this is what would have happened to Jesus' body. That all who believe in the resurrection are believing a fairy tale, when in reality, his body or what was left of it would have been taken, thrown into the city dump, to mastering to be picked apart by wild dogs. The crucifixion was altogether horrific, altogether public, altogether ugly. In fact, since it took days, one of their practice was sort of to break your legs so that the man could no longer lift himself up and catch breath, but eventually begin to choke and suffocate and die. Which in the Gospels is what you see. They walk around and they break the legs of the two thieves next to Jesus to hasten their death. And the Gospel accounts tell us that this is the manner in which Jesus died that he was crucified. The Gospels tell us that he was arrested one night after being betrayed by his friend. He was brought on trial. That he had all these people trump up fake charges against him in this kangaroo sham trial in court. And, and none of the charges could stick, but finally they got fed up. That they handed him over to Pontius Pilate. And though he was innocent still at the time, he ordered that he be whipped, sort of to appease the bloodthirst of the growing crowd. And then, when this cowardly judge, who thought he was innocent but could do nothing, convicts him and condemns him, Jesus is handed over to be flogged. A scene many of you have seen now in The Passion of the Christ. The idea that these whips that had balls of lead or straps of metal or shards of bone at the end so that they could latch them onto your back and rip off whole pieces of who you are. And then once Jesus was wet with blood, that this man, 33 years of age, was forced to carry his cross but too weak because of the beating he had just received. And so they grab Simon of Cyrene from the crowd and they force him to carry the cross with Jesus. And there he is stripped, so that the text tells us that soldiers stood underneath his cross and gambled for his clothes. And there he lies, crucified, nailed to the tree, and he dies the death of the worst scum of the empire. Dies the death reserved for the most despicable, detestable people, the common criminal of Rome. So the question for us is, this pitiful, horrific, horrendous, gruesome, gross scene, this scene from which we would literally turn our eyes, we would avert our face. Just to give you an example, in the small cards that we're giving out called Christ Crucified, it's just this 
flyer for this series. Our first draft of it, we sort of, the guy who made it, put for us little bloodshed drops on the front. Now it's just a two-dimensional card. It's just red ink. And yet we made him take it off because it was too graphic. So this two-dimensional card we can't look at. And yet the event happens and is so gross and so graphic we would turn our eyes. That has become what we call gospel. Our good news. How is it that this thing we can barely get our eyes to look at has become the center of our faith? Christ crucified the object of our worship, the cross of Jesus, the content of our preaching, Christ on the cross, the whole of our ministry. Everything we're about is this, this most horrific of moments. It's a very peculiar, odd, strange thing that billions of people find themselves the people of the cross. And so what I'm hoping over the next 12 weeks or so is for us to begin to investigate why the cross, this horrific moment, is such a good moment. Why Christians refer to Friday as Good Friday, the day that he died. Today what I want us to consider is how do you respond to the cross? I want to show us from the passage that Charlie read for us how the first hearers of Christ crucified responded and then give us a sense for how we might respond as well. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians. We're looking at chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 to 25. It's on page 952, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. As you're turning there, I'll read it for us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul is going to make this broad, overlying statement that's going to divide humanity into two groups. And he's basically going to say that the cross is folly, foolishness, to one group of people, namely those who are perishing. And simultaneously, the cross is the power of God to another group of people, namely those who are being saved. He's going to flesh this out for us a little more in verses 21 and following. So look there. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here's what Paul says. Basically, there's a few responses to the first message given of Christ crucified. He begins by giving us the response of one audience, namely the Jews. He starts by telling us how the Jews responded to and received the message of Christ crucified. Look at verse 22. For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, we'll get to that, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. So here's the first audience. God's elect people, the chosen people of God, Jews, and Paul says, the Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, which becomes for them a stumbling block. 
So here's the Jews. Here's his first audience. The Jews demand signs. So what that means is that the Jewish people were looking for signs, evidences of power, some display of strength that this Jesus was in fact the Christ. They are looking for signs, something to verify, validate that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah they were waiting for. And so they demand signs. When you read through the New Testament, what do you find? That all the time when Jews, Jews used to come to Jesus, what did they ask for? A sign. Over and over again, they'll ask him, give us a sign. So in Matthew 16 and in Mark 8, the Pharisees and Sadducees, it says, comes to him and they ask him, what sign from heaven are you going to give so that we may believe in you? They're asking for signs. They need to see some evidence of power, some display of strength, something to verify the claim that Jesus is the Christ. What display of strength are you going to show? Or then in Luke, in chapter 11, there's this scene where Jesus heals this man who's mute, who's been possessed by a demon, and the people who are there witnessing, some respond by saying, maybe he's doing this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while it says, others... Seeking to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So here are these people, they've just witnessed him heal this man who's mute, free him from a demon, and yet they say, what sign are you going to give from heaven so that we could believe? Or, or in John chapter 6, Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000. So he's done this incredible miracle, 5,000 men, we don't even know how many women or children, perhaps more. He's fed them, and so now all the crowds start coming to him because they're ready to see what he's got next. What show is he going to put on? What's his next act going to be? And so they basically say, Jesus, do something else. And when it seems in John 6 like Jesus is not going to jump through their hoops or perform miracles on demand, this is what it says. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now that's a bit odd because Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000. And, and yet now they're saying we want another sign. If we're going to believe you're the Messiah, what sign are you going to do? And, and here's the reason. It's because in their mind, you know, 5,000 is a significant feat. But with all due respect, it would be like they say, we've seen better. Right? So 5,000 is good. But do we need to remind you that Moses fed not 5,000, but 1 million. And he fed them not one meal, but three, and not one day, but for 40 years. When Moses accomplished redemption, he fed the people for 40 years. So with all due respect, you're going to have to give us a little bit more than bread and fish for 5,000. And so they're saying, what sign, what display, what evidence of power, what show of strength are you going to show that you are the Christ? When Moses came, need I remind you, we walked through a sea. What should have been a watery grave, we felt ground beneath our feet. That's what Moses did. So you've got to show us something. If you are supposed to be the Messiah, the better king than David who's going to free us from our oppressors, the better prophet than Moses who's going to deliver us. What sign, what evidence of power, what display of strength are you going to show to show that you, Jesus, are the Christ? They are seeking signs 
And instead, they get Christ crucified. They're seeking a display of power, an evidence of strength, some sign of divine favor, and they get the epitome of weakness, the pinnacle of powerlessness, the most pathetic, weak scene you could see. And instead of a sign of divine favor that God had chosen this one, this was God's selected one, this was God's anointed one, they get the very opposite sign. Because in their scriptures, in Deuteronomy, let me read you this verse. This is what Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 say. This is in their Old Testament scriptures. This is the law of God. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So the Jews want a sign of strength, a display of power, evidence of divine favor. And what they get is Paul saying, Christ crucified is the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, he dies the death. That means he's cursed by God. They want to prove this is the one chosen by God, favored by God. And Jesus dies the very death that is abominable and forbidden by their law. How? Are you going to reconcile those two? How are you going to reconcile Messiah and the cross? Jews demand a sign, but we preach Christ crucified. The idea that the Messiah would be on the cross is inconceivable for the Jewish mind. You think about it, in one of the talks that we did, in Talks with Jesus, when we launched the church, it was a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, which is just a translation of Messiah. You're the Messiah. A few verses later, Jesus tells them, I'm going to be crucified. The chief priests are going to take me. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. And what does Peter do? Peter responds like any Jew would respond. He pulls Jesus to the side and says, I don't know if you just heard me. I said, you're the Messiah. You shall never die that way. And Christ has to say, get behind me, Satan, for you don't know the mind of God. Right? It is inconceivable for the Jewish mind that the Messiah would be hanged, cursed by God. One of the early Christian apologists, one of the defenders of the faith, this father in church history called Justin Martyr, he has these series of dialogues with local Jewish leaders, a rabbi. This is what one of his conversation sounded like. The rabbi Trifo responds to Justin Martyr this way. He says, the scriptures compel us to await one, this is the Jewish perspective, to await one who is great and glorious, but this your so-called Christ is without honor and glory, so that he has fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. I mean, in the Jewish mind, Messiah crucified, Christ crucified, is a, is a contradiction in terms. It's like saying fried ice. You make sense of fried ice, and I will make sense of Christ crucified. It is absurd that the one sent by God should be cursed by God and hang on a tree. 
And yet they are seeking a sign of power, a display of strength, evidence of divine favor, and they get Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so the weakness of the cross baffles them. And the Jews don't know what to do with it. The cross is weak. And they don't know what to do with it. And so it becomes for them a stumbling block. It's the stone they keep tripping over. They fall over it. it or it can be translated, it's a, an affront to them, a disgrace, a shock, an outrage, a scandal that their Christ should be crucified. But that's not the only response because Paul's going to give us another response. In verse 22, it's not just the Jews that respond. He also tells us how the Greeks or the Gentiles respond. Basically, that's his way of saying the rest of the world. Remember, in, in the categories in the New Testament, you've got Jews and you've got everyone else. That's the Gentiles. So this is how the Jews respond, and now he's going to tell us how the Gentiles respond. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs, we've talked about that, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. The Jews are seeking signs, we preach Christ crucified, it's a stumbling block to them. Then we preach Christ crucified to the Gentiles who are seeking wisdom and it's folly to them. It's foolishness to them. If the Jews were sitting there seeking signs of power, the Greeks, the Gentiles, were sitting there seeking wisdom. The Greeks were the people who sort of prided themselves on being different than all the other barbarians because of the power of their mind. The Greeks were the ones who loved wisdom. They loved a, a well-crafted argument. They could sit through a good-sounding lecture. They just loved anybody who had the skill of elocution or oration. They, they loved the pursuit of wisdom. It's the Greeks that gave us minds like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato because they loved anything that would sit around and tickle your brain. The Gentiles were the kinds of folks who would sit around coffee shops and just talk about books with long names and funny authors. They just loved the pursuit, the thirst of wisdom and all the honor and esteem and success that it would bring to them. In fact, we're not going there now, but Corinthians, Paul's writing this letter to this church because though they come to see the gospel, they're still acting like Gentiles because they're after who's going to say it the best. And so you find these divisions in the church. Some go, I'm with Peter, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Paul. And their whole thing is, who's going to package this thing the best? And so Paul's response to them is, why do you care who's going to say it the best when what they're saying is the gospel? And let me remind you, the gospel is foolishness. So no matter how wise they're going to make it sound, the content is still going to be Jesus Christ crucified. Foolishness. Utter, absolute foolishness. Here are the Greeks, the Gentiles. They're seeking wisdom, success, honor, esteem. And instead they get Christ crucified. The best display of weakness, of failure, of shame, of dishonor. I'm not exaggerating when I say I don't think you could have come up with a more absurd message to give to the world then the one you crucified, the empire crucified, the Jewish peasant from Nazareth, is the Christ, is Lord of the Lords. It's foolish. Foolish for so many reasons. Uh, foolish for the Gentiles because think of Jesus stacked up against the other gods on display. 
It's not like the Gentiles were sort of wandering, looking for a God to believe in. Their skyline was filled with gods. You just had to take your pick. So you've got Zeus, who is the king of the gods, sitting on Mount Olympus with power. Or you've got Athena, his daughter, who they would have loved because she's the goddess of wisdom, reason, strategy, the wisest of all the gods. And then you stack up against them the Christian God, Jesus Christ, the Nazareth peasant Jew who was crucified by the Roman Empire. It's foolish. Just utter foolishness. Uh, foolish because we've already said, the Romans had already said that no good Roman, no polite Roman would even consider the cross. Talk about it, think about it, let it be in their eyes or ears, let alone for it to be the focal point of their worship. That the one who was on the cross would be the object of their lives. It makes no sense. It's foolish. In fact, that's why we get one of the first pictures that we do of the cross. One of the first artwork, one of the first drawings that we have of the crucifixion. It's not what you normally think of those ancient drawings with Jesus hanging on the cross and Mary sort of mourning by his side and the Apostle John weeping and, and a small halo around his head. One of the first drawings we have of the crucifixion is in Rome, found probably between the 1st and 3rd century. And the picture is of the body of a man hanging on a cross with the head of a jackass, and a man below him, and the inscription reads, Alexmanos worships his God. One of the earliest pictures we have of the cross is not worshippers mourning the dead Jesus, it's graffiti in Rome mocking the cross. The picture of a body hanging on the cross with the head of a donkey and a man prostrated beneath. And it says, Alexmanos worships his God. Foolishness. In the Gentile mind, it is foolishness. And it remains so today. The cross is foolishness to our world, to you, to me. The cross is foolishness if you're an atheist who doesn't believe there is a God, let alone that he's going to come into the world to die as a man for you. The cross is foolishness if you're an agnostic who's not sure if there's a God, but if there is, he's surely not the personal kind that's going to be mad at your sins and then save you for them. The cross is foolishness if you're a relativist who doesn't believe that Jesus is any way unique and that his death is anything but a tragedy or a tragic event. The cross is foolishness to you if you're irreligious, who scoffs at the idea that there is sin or that we are sinners and we have somehow offended a holy God and will stand to account before him or his cross. The cross is foolishness to religious churchgoers who scoff at the idea that I am a sinner. I'm comfortable with the idea that you are a sinner and the world is sinners, but that I am one and that I won't be saved by my good deeds, by my religion, by my church attendance, by my prayers. It's foolishness. Unaided by the Holy Spirit, the cross is foolishness to all. And so the cross is foolish to the Gentiles and they don't know what to do with it. The cross is weak to the Jews and is a stumbling block to them and is foolishness to the rest of the world, and is folly to them. The cross is weak, and the cross is foolish. 
a stumbling block and folly to the whole world. But thanks be to God, there is a third response. Look again at verses 21 through 25. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Verse 24, a third response. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thanks be to God that by His Spirit there is a third response for all who believe, for all who call, for all who are saved. There is a third response, namely that the cross is God's power and God's wisdom. The cross is weak, but it's weak power. Weak to the mind of a man, power in the hands of God. The cross is foolish, but it is foolish wisdom. Foolish to the mind of a man, wise in the plan of God. And so here's what I want you to hear. For all who are called, for all who believe, for all who respond to the folly of preaching, he said, that what I'm doing, my whole career, is foolishness. But to all who respond to the folly of preaching and believe and are called by His grace, the cross, Christ crucified, is weak power and foolish wisdom unto our salvation. The cross is the weak power and the foolish wisdom by which we are saved. So by God's grace, you come to see that the cross is not folly, it's actually wisdom. And over the next 12 weeks, I'm really hoping to begin to unpack and show to you that the problem of our sin and our separation from God was so great that the cross is the only answer. And that what appears foolish and folly to us is actually the wisdom of God, the plan of God unto salvation. That only God could have been so wise to be so foolish. Only God could have been so wise to be so foolish as to give us the cross. I'm hoping over the next 12 weeks to show you that the cross is weak, but it's the weak power of God. That it's power unto our salvation. So that over the next 12 weeks you begin to see what it is that God has accomplished through the cross. On those cards, if you flip through the back, you'll see what we're preaching through. Over these next 12 weeks, what we're trying to do is take the cross and turn it on its different angles and consider all that God has accomplished through Christ crucified. That Christ was crucified for our atonement. That we could literally at be at one with God. That Christ was crucified for our propitiation. The idea that the wrath of God would be absorbed by Jesus. That Christ was crucified for our expiation. That we would be cleansed from our filth and washed white as snow. That the cross of Christ was there for the glory of God. That it's ultimately not even for us, but for the glory of God that Christ was crucified. The idea that Christus Victor, that on the cross, Jesus is not hanging in defeat, but he is defeating his and our enemies. 
that there is Christus exemplar, that on the cross Jesus was crucified so that we might have an example when we suffer. That we'll consider that our ransom that we had in our sin accumulated such debt we could never repay but for our Redeemer, Jesus. We'll consider our justification. That through the cross, God solves the most insolvable problem. Namely, that he's a judge who looks at a sinful people and cannot compromise his justice and let them go, nor overlook his mercy and save them. How do you reconcile the two? He does it in the cross. We'll consider our reconciliation. That you and I were enemies of God, but he has brought us into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters through Christ. Each week considering, this is not weakness. This is actually the power of God. The cross is not a stumbling block to trip over. It's the cornerstone on which we stand. Paul says, I am resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. The cross is for us the weak power and the foolish wisdom by which we are saved. And in a day when the opposition against him was most real and most fresh, Paul was committed to preaching the cross. Right? It's not 2,010 years later when you can put a cross anywhere without reproach. But in a day when it was first seen as foolish and first seen as folly and first seen as weakness, Paul was committed to preach the cross because he was convinced of its power to save. Hear me. Paul was committed to preaching the cross because he was convinced of its power to save. It may not be what the people want, but it is surely what they need. And so we want that same commitment here. These 12 weeks are because we believe that too. You could grow whole churches built on so many things. Right? We're a church plant. We're struggling to fill seats. You could build, there are churches growing by the thousands. Because we could preach on time management. We could preach on having better money. We could preach on building better homes. And yet, as important as any of those will be, Paul says, I have been committed, resolved, resolute to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so in the coming weeks, we want to consider the cross. Why Christ was crucified and what God accomplished through His death. One theologian has said, you will never fully understand Christ till you understand His cross. And so we want to know Christ. We want to love Christ. We want to believe Christ. We want to follow Christ. We want to submit to Christ. We want to be on mission with Christ. And to all of that, we need to better understand the cross. I'll end with this. I'll just read you a few lyrics from a song that God used to actually save um, my wife. So in Shiner's life, God used this song called God's Own Fool to draw her to himself. Just consider some of these lyrics. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. So surrender the hunger to say you must know and have courage to say, I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. 
And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable, come be a fool as well. Amen. Let's pray.